Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, hometown of what Roger Ebert has called the greatest music video ever. You can see it on our Facebook wall. You can find us online Michael at... Michael Jackson w- was here for Thriller? No. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM. Or you can all listen to the live stream at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Hello, everyone. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. But there are four. Where once there are three, now there are four. Back from his trip on a Gemini starship is none other than Mr. Jeremy Bean. Whoa, man. It was so, that trip was sweet. Or his clone. Glad to be back. Yes. We need yes. to do some testing, Jeremy. See if it's really you. If it's really me, uh, it's me. Yeah. yeah, that sounds like it. Yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> certainly does. Uh, coming up in this episode, because you deserve it, we've got a listener requested look at just world theology or theory or belief or etc. 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 Also, in polyatheism, we'll take a look at a truly unique Mayan goddess, and we'll wrap up with not one but two head-spinningly bizarre stories that are, without a doubt, stranger than fiction. But first, making headlines this week was the death of Michigan's own Dr. Jack Kevorkian. Now, for folks out there who are not familiar with Jack Kevorkian, I imagine stateside, he's pretty well-known, right? Yeah, Um, I would think so. Internationally, maybe maybe not as much, so... um, he came to fame in the late 90s, um, partly due to a, um appearance on 60 Minutes. Mm-hmm. You remember this? Well, yeah, he was starting to be, he was local in the early to mid 90s because he would be of his assisted suicides. But then he hit national with the 60 Minutes yes. interview in the late 90s. And he, he really became the poster boy, for better or worse, for physician-assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, he was known in the media as Dr. Death. Yeah. And yet a Time magazine cover, and yeah. so they were covering as the cases piled up, which I think at the end he said that in some way or another he assisted with 130 was the number. So, he yeah, gave. that's the number he gives. Although sometimes the numbers vary, it's hard to verify. Right, and and then there was the, the one video that kind of led to his downfall was where he assisted a little bit more than the law. It was the Thomas yeah. Yoke video, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Usually he used a device, mm-hmm. and which allowed the patients themselves to activate the device so to Technically, they were taking their own lives. Exactly. He was just helping. Uh, but that very last case, uh, he actually injected. He used the syringe right. with barbiturate Because the, the patient was unable to do it. Right. He had advanced Lou Gehrig's disease yes. and was unable to do it. But that made it crystal clear yes. that he was uh, actually... 
he was the one that was actually uh, um, causing uh, the death. Yes, causing yeah. the death. So he was he was um, arrested for first degree murder. He was convicted for second degree murder, um, which is the difference between uh, you know intentional murder and manslaughter essentially. Um, and he was sentenced, and this is in 1999. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. Um, he was uh, paroled in 2007. Yeah, because of failing health. And when he was paroled, he had to promise that he wouldn't give anyone advice on how to kill themselves. <laughs> so he hit the lecture circuit, which is what all <laughs> people should do. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then just this past week, of course, Dr. Death himself died, which I will point out is not ironic. Well, he didn't need assistance. He had no. failing kidneys, and yes, he was he was eighty three years old, right? Yes, the same Most age likely... as Harold Camping, who is still alive and not raptured. Well, just that they're right there. This proves just world theory. So <laughs> you would have thought after an embarrassment like that, he would be seeking assistance. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, yeah, Corkin had. Uh, he's also of relevance to people uh, uh, of our ilk because he. Um, his principles that he often referred to uh, as a rationale for his actions were broadly humanist principles. He didn't re- refer to any religion or at least right. any controlling power. He was an atheist. No, uh, in fact, he believed that it was uh, organized religion in, in uh, his term actually uh, was kind of leading the uh, – he used the term inquisition as well. Yep. Against what he was doing, loaded terminology. Yeah, he uh, he spoke of himself in very epic terms, um, and uh, and of course he was clearly seeking out a lot of publicity, and that impacted people's image of him uh, in a negative way. Um, but you know, I I don't know. I personally have kind of. Uh, Mixed feelings on Jack Kevorkian. Yeah, well, I and and I haven't actually taken a poll here in the room yet. I agree with um, physician-assisted suicide. I believe that is a a right that people should be afforded. Um, and and this is something that really cuts across um, political lines. This is not a left side right side discussion much of the time. Of course, there are elements to it. Um, so I agree with with what he was trying to do, but if I were to pick a poster child for this cause of physician-assisted suicide, he wouldn't be Jack Kevorkian. Brilliant man, but not really a good spokesperson. He came off as a little bit perhaps too delighted by that's, the whole thing. That's the general consensus, I think. When you ask the – yes. without referring to him, when you ask the poll question, do you support physician-assisted suicide, you get about 50-50. But when you ask – when you bring him into the mix, even people who support it in general drop a bit because of what you just mentioned is that he yeah. – they are a little bit creeped out by his zeal perhaps. He was very flamboyant. Mm-hmm. He – you know, of course, he had he had a very toothy grin. Yes, he was. Yeah, I mean, he was just excited. In appearance, he's kind of a, a creepy guy, yeah. which is not something he can help. He was. He was. <laughs> he clearly wanted to be at the center of a media yep. spotlight, and and part of it, part of it, I think, might have been a legitimate desire to, I don't know, be a martyr in this regard. Yep. I mean, he was. He was willing to go to jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was willing to provoke people. And and of course uh, that's that's going to upset people, 
But at the same time, he did some crazy stuff. Like uh, at one point, one of his hearings, he dressed up in a uh, in a colonial era costume to try to show. I don't remember that. Complete with his hands well, in he, the stocks, like he, he always wanted pillory. to be an actor. That was his big thing. Oh, he wanted. He see, wanted, that's a problem yeah. right there. Actors. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, he kind of and sometimes well, treated this as performance art. Draw. Uh, Dressing up as a as a colonial era yeah. to show how uh, how uh, uh, outdated these laws are, oh, or or he had that silly name. He he named the device that he built the Mercitron, which invited all <laughs> sorts of I know invited all sorts of mockery from you know David Letterman and right. Jay Leno and that sort of thing. Well, the original name for it was the Dalek, but that didn't stick. So exterminate. Anyway, um, oh boy, well, yeah, oh boy, it, it didn't help that he, he didn't appear to, you know, screen his patients as to whether, you know, they were close to death. And, yes. a, and, a lot, and that's a big argument. Of yes. It is, um, the, the Oregon law, I think, uh, does have that, uh, attached yes. to it saying that, you know, we need to ensure in some way that, that the, the people wanting this, this procedure done are at the tail end of their, their terminal illness. Right. Oh, Justin scooped me. That's exactly what yeah. I was going to do. I was going to walk through point by point how Kevorkian's procedure for doing things and compare it to uh, the Oregon procedure uh, because I think that is the other issue with Jack Kevorkian yes. is that he uh, he did not do this ethically. He did not do mm. it carefully enough. And I don't think it's a major... Uh, I'll repeat... I'll repeat... Uh, I'll repeat Ron Lindsay here, the director of CFI, right. and wrote uh, wrote the book Future Bioethics, mm-hmm. and he was uh, the other episode we have where we discuss physician assisted suicide. He was our guest, right. and uh, we went into a lot of detail. But he made a good point. He said he's not going to condemn Kevorkian too much for this because this is an example when a procedure like this has to go underground. And it's not right. properly – it can't be properly regulated by the government. You're going to be inviting these types of things to well, happen. It's like with back alley abortions too. Exactly. You know, I mean back before abortion was legal and in much of the country they're working to change that, um, there were – it was a much more dangerous procedure than it is now that it's legal and people can get access to it. Just well, like physician-assisted I, suicide – you also see that but, there's a tension between his sort of radical individualism and – because one thing that he was zealous about, right or wrong again, and mm-hmm. that is that he thought it was the person's decision whether they die right. or not, which sometimes can come in conflict when you have an organized like a, a body of screening procedures. So for example, let's say I wanted to die and I thought my limit had been reached. What if doctors didn't find that I was necessarily think close to death or maybe enough, they did? Yeah, or, or maybe yeah. they thought I could be managed through – painkillers. That sort of radical individualism that he said that it's always is up to the person's desire, yeah. period, would conflict with that. And I think yeah. maybe some of the cases that we that, that creeped people out a lot, like, well, they weren't really that close to death or they could have been taken care of through pain management, his attitude was that it doesn't matter, it's up to because them. Because this is what they want. And that, that, that's where some people got peeled off is that many people, like Jeremy said, would, would, would lobby for, here's a set of criteria, but Kevorkian thinks Thought that that was just as much tyranny as anything else. Well, I, I think we can. Uh, I think we could have that debate. I, in fact, my own views. I'm pretty radically in favor of um, of 
people's the moral right for people to take their own lives. So I'd be willing to have that debate too. As far as an issue of public policy is concerned, um, my concern is that people who are against physician-assisted suicide mm-hmm. want us, they like us to believe that it's going to be... Kevorkian style. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. so easy to and, vilify and them. Yes, and they, they use that as the example instead of looking at how different the policies actually are. Let me give some concrete examples here. Um, in Kevorkian's case, you know, a lot of times these uh, these uh, suicides were in the in a van mm-hmm. or or right. in a tr- in a uh, back alley. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, or a state park in Michigan. State park. That's, that's right. what I was going to say. Right. A state park. Uh, a lot of times, he barely even knew these patients. In no cases was he actually their treating physician. Right. So he barely knows these people. Oftentimes, he has about a weekend to get familiar with them, uh, realize their their history. Uh, he never did look at their medical histories. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times there was, well, not a lot of times, every time uh, there was no psychiatric evaluation. Right. right. There's a lot of times he didn't even contact their physicians. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, any any kind of euthanasia policy <laughs> that we would have uh, allowing that, uh, we're going to we're going to want to make sure if it's ethical, that we've done a couple of things, that we've given people other options right. that they're aware of and uh, they, they know the other options. Such as hospice care. Yes, hospice. Uh, there are, there are kind of extreme forms of, uh, of pain management right. that can be used. And a lot of times I think people aren't even aware exactly of all the details yeah, of, of what's available to them. Although to play devil's advocate a little bit here, I think you're – kind of mincing words when you're talking about the difference between hospice sometimes and physician-assisted suicide because essentially what they will do with the pain management is give you so much morphine that um, that it will essentially kill you um, or other other pain meds. So the difference is, is really pretty loose. They're all right, that's I'm fine with but, that. Yeah, I, okay. I, I I don't object to either policy. I, I'm no, just I, I, more I don't saying either. more saying that I I think it one of the ethical demands on somebody on a physician who's going to do this is to make the patients aware right. of the other options. I, I guess I'm just bringing that up to say yeah. that this happens all the time, even in states where oh, sure, quote unquote sure. physician assisted suicide is not on the books. Yeah. Sure. And also, I think another uh, moral obligation is make to make sure that the uh, that the patient is mentally competent to actually make that decision, of that they're in their right mind, that they're not being coerced, uh, those sorts of concerns. If you look at, um, we've had now the uh, the Oregon Death with Dignity Act mm-hmm. and Washington, which is mm-hmm. almost the same thing as, as Oregon. Right, right. Which Kevorkian the, doesn't actually agree with. He says that they're doing it wrong. Yeah. Right, right. Well, let's just look at their procedure real quick. To, mm-hmm. to, you know, we can, again, like I said, I'm okay with having the debate about this. I think I might be for a more extreme version right. of it. But just so people know how these policies actually work, right. uh, I, th- I think I think people would uh, have a have an entirely different impression of 
physician-assisted suicide if they if they knew how it actually worked in the Oregon case. And I'm just using the Absolutely. Oregon one mm-hmm. because that's the one that's been around for over a decade and right. that we actually have some really good and, data. And there on. are other countries with other laws which we can we can look at too. But Oregon is a is a good example yeah. for it. In yeah. Oregon um, you have to be diagnosed with a terminal disease that is has a real chance of taking your life in the next six months. Uh, so not just anybody can get it. They also need to prove that the desire to do this is sustained, uh, that it's not just done on a whim. It's right. not as if somebody had a very bad pain day mm-hmm. and was depressed and said, okay, this is what I want. Yeah. And they need two verbal requests within 15 days of each other uh, at least. Uh, they need one written request with two witnesses signing to it. Uh, they have to be informed of all their other options of hospice, advanced pain control, and all that. Mm-hmm. They need a second physician's approval to make sure that the diagnosis was legitimate, that they really are terminal. Uh, they have to undergo counseling to determine that they are competent to make this decision and to determine that they aren't being coerced. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think is really good, I, I think some of these are actually too restrictive. I, I agree. I agree completely. But uh, but as far as starting this off as a policy, yeah, you know, getting it's, people it's used step. to it, yeah, to yeah. be very cautious and to monitor and to watch the effects. Well, anyways, that's that's where I was getting at. What yeah. the really great thing about uh, the Oregon system is that the Oregon Department of Human Services. Uh, reviews the whole thing. Uh, they they uh, they produce an annual public report that anybody can go uh, to see That's right. yeah. that details uh, exactly how many people how are many, seeking this treatment, yep. everything else. How many are actually getting it too because right. there's a lot of people who apply that don't necessarily – And because of that, because they've been so good at that record keeping um, – we we now we know that many of the objections, the kind of slippery slope arguments that are brought up against this procedure, we know just aren't true. Right. For example, uh, the before this act was passed, the major arguments were that thousands and thousands of people were going to be seeking this, right. uh, partially because their doctors would be pushing them into it. Their doctors wouldn't be sharing the just, real options. By the way, a great tactic for doctors to try to help their patients die, because that way they can keep charging them for tests and so forth. I mean, which yeah. conspiracy right. are, yeah. you, are yeah. you going to believe? Well, it's <laughs> kind of like realtors, too. If well, you turn over the house, you can go <laughs> on to a new exactly. one. There is a, Maybe there's argument a really promising AIDS patient coming in. The, the, the group, <laughs> um, drugs. the disability group, not dead yet, has actually advanced an argument that's similar, but it's not the doctors. They, are, they would say that merely presenting this as an option might pressure some people to basically – uh, feel that they should not burden others by having that option to remove themselves from the living, That's, you know, like uh, that... people with disabilities who are not terminally mm. ill. In, or... yeah. Well, I I don't know. Maybe I'm the kook in the room, but uh, in the absence of empirical evidence, to me, that that could be a real threat as far as if you're watching out for your family and you're worried about right, right. running again, up the, the bills. you can do on a whim. And, um, right. 
I don't know that I have a problem with that, you know, that that if people are saying, well, I wouldn't normally have thought of doing this, but it is a viable option. So well, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure they, they would point to like a Soylent Green type thing where old people would mm. say would be kind of like, you know, uh, shunted into. Well, it's your time yeah, now. Brave New World it's, kind it's, of uh, it's people. Yeah. Mm, so they so thought thousands green. of people would be uh, seeking this. Only 500 in the past decade yeah. uh, actually have. I mean, it's probably a little over 500 now. Right. But, uh, but but remarkably yeah, low. Yeah. And uh, so that was one that didn't, wasn't true. The other one was that this would, uh, this would target minorities, they thought. Uh, that yes. would actually be uh, uh, much more pressure on poor, um, underprivileged mm. Turns out, uh, though, uh, poor, underprivileged people don't actually get to live long enough to <laughs> die of a terminal illness. So. Uh, yeah, there might be some truth to that. Especially because uh, we don't the, have health care here in uh, the United Actually, States. the people who sought it out were overwhelmingly uh, affluent, well-educated, and typically yeah. were white. Well, they have to have health insurance in order to, to <laughs> do this. So, I mean, that says a lot about our country right there. Real quick, the uh, you were just talking about, um, you know, how, the the difference in numbers between the people who actually uh, seek it out, and then the people who actually go through with it. Right. Um, in, in last year, there were 96 prescriptions uh, given out, and this is according to the 2010 annual report mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in Oregon. Um, but that there are only actually 65 people who ended their lives. So you have, you yeah. know. So they're literally the, they're given the medication that they can take to end their lives, right. and a lot of people they just want that to take as it or, an option, they or maybe don't that. get the, the opportunity. Overall to. average, the overall average is is a third. Okay, Only right. a third of yeah. people who actually take the drugs ever use them. That's why Ron Lizzie says, and I think he's right here. Uh, we sh- it's not even right to call this physician assisted suicide, no. um, because really. Really what the doctor is doing here is giving the patient peace of mind that if it does get to the point where it is too much for them to bear, they can hasten their own lives. If you're talking about somebody who's terminal within the next six months, can you really – I mean does it even make sense to call it? Suicide. Yeah, I think this is something that people never think about. Is that as the uh, many disease progressions are not steady and linear, declining the same amount every day. That there's right, a up and right. down, and many of the people feel this was covered. Actually, I don't know if you guys saw a few years ago. There was a show by Bill Moyers on dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, PBS. It was really good. But they, but he showed that some people would set a thing like, when I get to this point where I can't like move my hands, then I don't want to live anymore. Mm-hmm. And so they would assemble medication for that. But then when the time came. You know, they they still wanted to be around for a while or yeah, that yeah. they would say, OK, well, maybe it's just when I can't swallow anymore. They were scared, you know, like with with Lou Gehrig's disease. Many people are, are scared of choking oh, to death on their own saliva. The way you die from right. Lou Gehrig's most and, of and the time. So, right. And so sometimes when people put it off, there's there's shows, you know, that, that, that follow these people where they put it off and they try to knock the date back and knock it back because they, you know, understandably have ambivalence about it. But sometimes they get to the point where – now they've lost the ability to even yeah. do control that themselves anymore. So a lot of people mm-hmm. want that option there to to you know so that they can have it around and then when the day comes it's a they comfort. can do it. More more than it is an actual solution for anything, it is a comfort for a it's, lot of it's people. It's an acceptable form of moving the goalposts. Yeah, right, right. <laughs>
I can't remember if I did. I ever talk about my visit to the Hemlock Society on the show? I don't think you have. I don't think I did. I think that was off off the record with when Ron Lindsay was on last time. Okay. For me, I when I first got interested in this issue was I think I was reading Peter Singer's Practical Ethics. Hmm. I think I was still in college actually, and so for me, uh, this was all just purely academic issue. Uh, You know, I I don't think a young person is thinking too much about whether or not they're going to need to take their own life or anything like that. Although they should. Should always uh, make end-of-life plans. Oh, yeah. I wasn't saying that was wise. I'm just saying it's typically... (laughs) typically, Very unusual to be thinking of those A 20-something approaches this issue in a different headspace than a than a 60 or 70 year old person Absolutely. does. And, uh, and for me, it was mostly intellectual. It was mm-hmm. academic. Uh, I could see the moral argument. The moral argument to me was absolutely clear that there's nothing romantic about death mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, minimizing suffering is a good thing. Right. And so when somebody who is fully in control of their own mental capacities makes an autonomous choice, to ease their own suffering and oftentimes the suffering of their family. That's a uh, obviously, obviously is not, not only morally permissible to me, it's actually it's actually the ethical thing to do in some people's circumstances. I agree. Um, so I was at a conference. Uh, it was a humanist conference and um, a chapter of the Florida – Hemlocks, or what was previously the Hemlock Society, mm-hmm. I forget their current name. Named after the drug that Socrates, Socrates took, took to end his own life. Yes. Mm. Um, Good name. I think it's a great yeah. name, but, but for marketing purposes, not they've, a great they've, marketing. They've changed it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair enough. Um, well, as Steve Martin said when he was playing that on Saturday Night Live, Socrates' last words were, "What." Hemlocks is poison? <laughs> they just said drink this and he drank it. Famous last words. Hemlock is poison? <laughs> Don't worry. Hydrogen's not flammable. That's the one from the Hindenburg. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, okay. So I, I uh, wanted to visit this chapter meeting of the Hemlock Society and I, and I uh, found out what time it was and went there and I was – Shocked to find out I was the one person that was under 50 in the room. (laughs) Wow. uh, Yeah. And actually, most people were were much older. And um, they did their little session where they were explaining their policy goals, uh, what they were trying to get done in Florida and all that. And um, somebody – one an older gentleman there moved up to the microphone because all this was being taped for the conference, mm. and um, he turned off the soundboard. Uh, and the next half an hour was all these people in a very tight circle, explaining to each other uh, research they had done into forensically untraceable ways of killing themselves. Oh, wow. You know, and it's it wasn't like an abstract academic thing at all for these people. This was like um, one of their friends, for example, uh, had his his father. There's a there's a pill that you can obtain um, uh, for pain control that you have to lie to your doctor to to 
you know, claim a legitimate condition to get. But if you get enough of these, you can overdose on it and it's, uh, um, um, it doesn't stay in your system for some reason. Apparently, it's not traceable. They won't. They it won't invalidate your life insurance policy or anything. Right, and that, that's um, the important that's the part thing, of, yeah. of right. why they're trying to find ways to do this secretively is because they want their their wives, children, whomever, next of kin to get right their their and they health insurance they were sharing this because they were sharing horror stories too. There's something like with helium gas or something. I think was another method, and I'm not uh, not sharing this to give anybody ideas. <laughs> this is just what I heard. Um, but they had horror stories about you know so and so was there with his father while he was taking in the helium gas and it didn't take and he needed to finish the job. You know, he needed to kill his own father rather than let him, you know, spasm on the floor, you know, and seize, seize on the floor, you know, and, um, a lot of, some of the, the couples there were, um, um, one of the guys, his wife was very close to death. And uh, and they were like they were listening and taking notes because this is something they were going to be doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it just it just struck me how very vividly in a very emotional way that this is this is a real issue for people. This, this is, is not, not an academic exercise. Yeah. And these people wouldn't have to be huddling around secretively in a basement mm-hmm. counseling each other on these methods. Well, coming up with some if they had. If if it wasn't underground, you right. know, it should it should be if something that they can debate. do safely. Yeah. It should be something that their family can be around in their last moments yes. and not be culpable uh, for murder. Right. Um, yeah. Be- because these these homegrown methods are dangerous. You get in situations where it doesn't work, and rather than ending up dead, you end up paralyzed or yeah. you know. Or dying in a horribly horrible thing, or or in yeah. a terribly painful way. So, if this were legal, if the physician-assisted suicide were available, you know, it would it would completely change the the last days for these terminally ill people. Right, and the moral objections to it, aside from the ones that we just talked about, which can be shown to be empirically false, some of the deeper philosophical objections are. Uh, I do think just come from a, a silly kind of rule-based religious morality. Well, and here I can give you some examples of that. Um, I actually pulled up the um, policy statements from various faith groups about um, euthanasia. Uh, this is from religioustolerance.org. The Christian Reformed Church, my people, um, <laughs> in 1971 – all the way back, a synod, which is their Congress, essentially, yeah. uh, adopted a resolution which stated, quote, that synod, mindful of the sixth commandment, condemned the wanton or arbitrary destruction of any human being at any state of its development from the point of conception to the point of death. So physician-assisted suicide and abortion taken out in one fell swoop there. Do they make a distinction between passive and active euthanasia? Uh, not not in this statement. So other other groups passive, have passive would be just uh, removing removing life sustaining care. Exactly, 
and then active would be administering some kind right. of yeah. some kind of medication. Makes me wonder how they're defining wanton. If like right, exactly. Wanton would suggest that they would be right. against active, but might be still right. for or arbitrary. And, Are we not? Do we not have good reasons? And is this? the Christian Reformed Church? And I, I honestly don't know. Are they against capital punishment? Because I would presume so. Maybe that's not if wanton or arbitrary if right. they stick to it. But uh, uh, Roman Catholic Church, the uh, catechism of the Catholic Church states, uh, quote, whatever its motives and means, direct euthanasia consists in putting an end to the lives of the handicapped, sick, or dying persons. It is morally unacceptable. And John Paul II wrote in 1995, uh, in communion with bishops of the Catholic Church, I confirm that euthanasia is a grave violation of the law of God, since it is the deliberate and morally unacceptable killing of a human person. This doctrine is based upon the natural law and upon written and upon the written word of God as transmitted by the church's traditions and taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium. Um, so you always get that the whole you know they're playing God. Right. Kind of argument. But they don't have any problems with us, you know, um, you know, advanced medical procedures that like, you know, had this sustain life. Way right. Longer right. Exactly. Than, yeah. That's ex- that's playing God too. Uh, God's will yes. has been thwarted. Um, uh, there are, uh, according to this article, at least two groups that have um, a a more positive um, approach of euthanasia. The not surprising, the Unitarian Universalists. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they issued a statement in 1988 in support of euthanasia and choice in assisted suicide, but only if there are proper precautions in place to avoid abuse, um, which I think we can probably um, agree with. And mainline and liberal Christian denominations in general, um, Methodist Church on the U.S. West Coast, the Episcopalian Anglican, Unitarian, Methodist, Presbyterian, and Quaker movements are amongst the most liberal, allowing at least individual decision in making cases of active euthanasia. So that's a that's about the best you're going to get from yeah. religious groups. I think I think a lesson can be learned on the nature of ethics and how a more secular ethic differs from a religious one from mm-hmm. Just looking at that distinction itself between passive and active euthanasia, at least me speaking for, as a consequentialist, as a utilitarian, to me there's not a real difference between um, removing care to allow someone to die mm-hmm. and actually administering a drug that would take their life. Right. If there is a difference, uh, it's that removing a care, removing care is actually more barbaric. Um, so you're taking away because if you, you're taking well, the, yeah. the breath out of their lungs as opposed to well this was uh, my my grandmother just two years ago uh, um, right. her her uh, kidneys were failing and her body had become toxic mm-hmm. and uh, she had a do not resuscitate uh, policy and uh, you know what what we did was the only option that was available to us was to let her starve to death and. And, uh, you know, stop feeding her, take her off all uh, dialysis and everything. And, uh, you know, the most you can do is be with that person uh, while they're going through that 
and, you know, swab their lips and their tongue, which as they're dehydrating is becoming leather and cracking and splitting and is very painful. That's the most you can do is hold their hand while they're going through that and try to give them a tiny bit of comfort. Now, so we had to do that for weeks as she was, you know, getting increasingly more delirious and crying out for her mother and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that leaves a huge impact on the family, too. Mm-hmm. You know, that that uh, that memory of those last days casts a shadow on my entire my entire memory of her right. uh, to the point where it's now a couple years later. And I, I intentionally. Uh, go past uh, photographs of my grandmother. I, I do not dwell on them because I'm not ready to think about that yet. Yeah. Now, a simple injection, you know, of morphine or something, I don't know what they actually use. But, a, a, you know, that whole thing could be blissfully over, painlessly over in just a moment. Um. But it requires – and to me, which is so much clearly is the more moral thing to do, right. so much so that people with their own pets yeah, exactly. wouldn't think I mean, twice. They, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't dare let their, their dog starve to death. But right. they – you know, you, so most people see that this is humane when you it comes to down, their dogs. It's the more merciful thing to right. do. Yeah. But the moral thinking uh, – but the, I'm, I'm approaching this from a consequentialist standpoint, which right. is the act is moral – uh, according to its consequences mm-hmm. and what what it actually its actual impact on the world and people, uh, people who are approaching this from a divine command theory perspective are seeing it as well. The removing care is you know the re- the removal of life sustaining treatment and food and water and stuff is just letting nature take its course i'm not actually doing anything wrong if i were to actually inject that uh that medicine in in there right. uh, then i i am now right. committing the You've deed that makes me a murderer i've broken the commandment it, it's, and it, like it's, the, just it's like the, the trolley experiment, right? We're pushing the fat person on the tracks, killing him and saving the other people right. is much more difficult for people to accept than I pulling the lever, which, lever will, yeah. which will indirectly right. kill other people. But the, yeah. but the whole point of that is the outcome is exactly the same. Exactly. And in this case, the outcome is actually worse. The right. outcome is right. more heinous. Uh, more the, suffering. And you do see that. I think there was a yeah. survey a couple of years ago where it showed that the more religious people were, the, the, the more they went for these extreme life-sustaining measures in the face of all, you know, which is to instruct some people, I think, in class we talked about this, is somewhat ironic because if you are believe, you know, in, in – and the traditional Christian view of there's an afterlife in paradise or whatever like that, you shouldn't be hanging on. But those are the people who, you know, resolutely don't do anything about it. Right. You know, uh, I um, I would recommend That's everybody. Because they've you know, never become, they don't have any motivation to become comfortable with death or yeah, form exactly. a right relationship it's, it's, with yeah, it. it. It's not realistic. Yeah, I, um, there's there's they have this discussion too. Also in Europe, uh, there there's organizations. I think there's a few of them in Switzerland. One of them is called Dignitas, where they uh, have advocating for policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I um, there's a video I think everybody should see up from Frontline called the Suicide Tourist. 
uh, which follows a, a, an American living abroad who has Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS, who yeah, yes. arranges. It's a very moving documentary. It's, yeah, I was. It was extremely powerful. But they follow him in the last days, where they show him going and making arrangements to fly from London to. Zurich to end his life, right. and they talk to some of the people in Dignitas, and, the, and they have like retired judges or physicians or social workers who take each stage of the process. They uh, do an assessment of the person to make sure that they are terminally ill, that they're in their right mind. Mm-hmm. They go and get the medication, which is, I think, a barbiturate, a phenobarbital a dose. Mm-hmm. Uh, they videotape the procedure. The social worker that stays with the person, you know, has them on camera saying, this is what I want. Right. Uh, you know, and then they show in this documentary, they showed the whole thing. You know, he drinks the, the thing and... and he listens to his favorite music and, and dies, you know. And so I think that that they, you know, they're having this debate in other countries and it seems like they're having this, you know, there are organizations pushing Everywhere. a more rational yeah. discussion of this. Let's yes. talk about it. You know? Yeah. And, and so far it hasn't been terribly successful in Belgium, in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. It is legal. Um, but. Almost everywhere else, um, including in Australia, where it was, at least parts of Australia, it was legal for a time, is now illegal. Um, So in most of the areas of the world, in most of the states here in the U.S., where it has come up to a vote or where it's been uh, discussed, um, it has been shot down. It's been um, kept illegal, including in Michigan, Right during the Kevorkian scandal, where yeah. it lost like seventy nine percent to fourteen percent. I mean, does that add up? No. Um, but but it was it was overwhelming loss right right here in Michigan for physician assisted suicide, partly because they had Kevorkian. Well, and, too, and it say, even went up this. to the Supreme Court. Yep. I, that was kind of some meddling. That yep. that was really bad timing. Yes. <laughs> Because actually the, the courts had, had for the most part before that point uh, decided that it, it wasn't – there wasn't anything unconstitutional about – The constitution doesn't yeah. say anything about it. Right, right. And so it, it couldn't be considered murder either, right. uh, the physician you know, just helping. Um, but there was so much pressure to strike at Kevorkian because, because he was getting yeah. away with this in people's minds. Um, that yeah, the Michigan Supreme Court. So we're we're kind of screwed with our policies here. It's yes. now part of. Uh, <laughs> when you look at the polls, though, when they ask the question uh, and then subdivide it by things like age or more specifically mm-hmm. whether you've known anybody who's had right. something a situation like that, then you start to see the figures you know flop, uh, flip flop overwhelmingly because you know uh, not to sound mean, but unless you've like gone through that, you should you know not weigh in on the issue. It's, it's, it's not up to you unless you've actually sat through it. Yeah. Um, yeah, people still have this weird romantic romantic feelings about death from time to time. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know... And, and not to, not to dwell too much, because I, I, I think it is a loose connection between abortion and this, but it's the, the same argument comes back to me, is it's not about quantity of life. We don't want to make sure every single uh, fetus is born. We don't want to make sure that everyone lives for every single day that they possibly can. I'm more concerned with quality of life. I want the children that are born to have safe homes that they can go to, even if those parents happen to be gay. Um, 
which is a whole separate issue. I want people to be able to when their quality of life has gotten to a point yeah. that they don't want to go on anymore. To have that option. Well, there so. are – there's even bills now, that, not to get away from the death, but that want to push back a personhood. In Colorado, I think they have now mm-hmm. a personhood at conception amendment, yep. which brought up all these, you know, like stuff that we talk about all the time. But uh, like, you know, so uh, what about property rights? Could a, could a right. embryo inherit – you know, uh, a property that, or is it really at conception? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. They want to. They want to do. You know, and clearly they so have right to life motivation. Twinning doesn't have. Yeah, exactly. They well, share that, a soul yeah. or, or identical twins or half a person for voting yes. and representation purposes. Is a pregnant woman considered two people then? Right, or you right. know, I mean, it's just to, to author stuff. It's just laughable, yeah. uh, and the the implications aren't aren't well thought out. And that's at the early end. But also, I think it's you could argue at the end of life, just like you said, sheer it's life, important. just to have a heartbeat and brainwaves, as if that was L- meaningful. Like Terry Schiavo, right? Let's yeah. keep her alive, just because or without a cortex. Yeah, exactly. Well, and this is going to be become more and more of an issue because uh, because our life-sustaining technologies are so He's good so now, good, right? yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not inconceivable that in a few decades, just about everybody could be kept in some sort of I never thought I would state. live this long and I'm still Yeah, here, well, so. yeah. no one thought you would. I know. Um, and that, well, then we're going to get all the, you know, more of this death panel bullshit yeah absolutely uh, because because it is it is anybody who's practically minded is going to have to ask at that point do we dump all this resources and just keeping somebody alive mm-hmm. um but then of course you know if the government turn on does us, it our, we're being socialist and if, if the government rations it, it's it's a death panel but if the hmo does it then it's business right <laughs> right right <laughs> Well, I, I for one am interested to hear what our listeners think of this issue because it is a it is a complex issue and it, it doesn't break down clear lines like uh, a lot of things we talk about. So um, speaking of our listeners and listener inputs, um, let's turn now to another issue that was requested by a listener. Yeah, we uh, we recently got an email. Um... From Llewellyn, which I know how to pronounce, I think – because of Shakespeare and Shakespeare alone, all I know of Welsh <laughs> comes from Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. They, they, uh, they, they, they were asking if we could maybe do a show uh, looking at the just world hypothesis, other, otherwise known as just world belief or just, just world, world theology, theory. just world. The- yeah, I mean, right. there's, there's which, which is a tendency uh, for people to want to believe that the world is, is fundamentally just, right? Uh, so that people who, you know. People who are subject to really unfortunate events uh, in some way deserve it. Yes. And so if if you're a person that has good luck, then you've you've in some way deserved that too right. by the quality of your character. Yes. And, and, I mean, I've been dealing – when I got this email, all of a sudden I got – switch flipped in my head because I've been dealing with this issue um, very directly for a while. Um, my wife and I – and um, associates of ours are working on organizing a slut walk here in Grand Rapids. Mm. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with slut walk. Which is very confusing to people who aren't familiar with it. It is familiar. (laughs) It's confusing to me, and I am familiar with it. It started out... Is that um, like zombie walk, but you just changed the zombie (laughs) to a slut? Not exactly. Um, It started in Toronto because a woman was raped, and I believe it was a police officer said that... Um, if you're going to dress like a slot, this sort of thing's going to happen. 
And so the slut walk movement, which is now happening all over the place, it just happened in Chicago this last weekend, Grand Rapids uh, later this month, and uh, all over the country and and continent, um, is to end this idea of blaming the victim, which happens, I think, with rape more than with any other crime, especially violent crimes. Yeah, a lot of the Just World studies were done with rape victims. Yes, and and, and it's so or, common... Or mock trials with rape victims. Yeah, it's so common, I didn't even... It didn't even click with me that, oh yeah, this is Just World theory. I was just thinking, no, people are yeah, assholes. You can, right. Yeah, you could... What, who was the... Who was the rapper who was beating his uh, Chris girlfriend? Brown. Chris Brown. Oh, Chris Brown, yeah. And you saw all these people on Facebook and stuff just defending yeah. Yeah. his right to do that. And it, it was an eye-opener for me, too. Like, yeah. holy cow. Yeah, I think many people are interested in Just World because it covers so many different phenomena of basically, if you want to wrap your head around it, it's basically, I guess, kind of consequentialist thinking, not to steal the term from philosophy, but that you reason backwards from the outcome. Exactly. So, for example, there are studies that, that show that when you have a scenario like, you know, some guy's driving and then a tree falls on his car and kills him. If the guy was depicted as being kind of shady, like he was driving back from an affair, people said that he deserved it. Whereas if he was depicted a different way, they thought that it was just, you know, he didn't. So so people will basically take an outcome and then reason backwards of, well, there must have been a reason for this. And then obviously in a negative situation, it's you had it coming. I mean, I, I covered, I think, in an earlier episode, I'm not. Uh, remembering which number it was, but there's even studies done with Bush voters about the Iraq war with hmm. the 9-11 issue of the connection between 9-11 and, uh, and Saddam Hussein, which wasn't there. Right. But many of the voters were re-interviewed afterwards and they were asked, do you still support the Iraq war even though 9-11 was discredited? And there was a significant proportion I mentioned in the study that, that, that they seemed to reason backwards of, well, we're there. So there must be a reason that they're at exactly. war. So exactly. people are very reluctant to overturn ba- retroactively the course of events, and they'll come up with a lot of justifications right. to say if if an action occurs, there must be a reason for it. Right. And, then, and, 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 of course, in the, the grandest right. scale, um, as far as religion goes, just world uh, theory or just world theology manifests with heaven-hell dichotomy, sure. right? You go to hell because you deserved it. Yeah, he may seem like a really good person. I didn't see him do anything wrong, but he's going to hell because he didn't believe in Jesus. You can see it in the prosperity gospel movement. Exactly. Well, actually, no, I... I, uh, It's funny you mentioned, Job, is that if you were to trace kind of just world thinking in the Hebrew Bible, at least... I think you get two distinct veins. You, yeah. you do get you do get the Deuteronomist history uh, and a lot of the wisdom literature as well. Right. Uh, well, both, Sodom and Gomorrah. Being... I mean, the the Deuteronomist history makes it absolutely clear. I mean, they just they write it out that hey, uh, you're in a you're in a covenantal relationship with Yahweh. Here's the deal: you obey. You get these good things. You disobey, you're going to have to deal with these bad things. I mean, as simple as when Moses and, disobeys even minor commands and right. he's punished for it. Right. Um, or And it's a collective thing. One person in the tribe can exactly. can do something wrong and invite uh, calamity on everyone. Mm-hmm. But you even get it in – you get a more secular version in the ethical – or in the uh, in the wisdom writings that you'd find in Proverbs mm-hmm. – um, 
that that is much more like uh, kind of character determines destiny, and if you live a righteous life, uh, good things will happen to you just as a matter of practical consequence. Right, right. kind of a karma. In, in yeah, sense. what's remarkable about the books like Job and Ecclesiastes, uh, some of these other books, is that they they strike at the heart of that message and say quite the opposite. Bad stuff happens. Yeah. There's no rhyme or reason. Yeah. It uh, rains on the just the and whole, the unjust. Rain falls on the just. Right. What Atheists I, what I a lot of times... Yeah, his, oh. The friends or his, his friends, the justifications they're giving for it. Like, oh, oh, you yeah, must yeah, have definitely. done something wrong. Yeah. Yes. You know? That's part of why I like Job so much is because you do. You get the religious right. thinking and it's completely wrong. Well, and wrong. it's a discussion. And it's, and, a, it's a cool thing. And uh, I know I know we're I'm rambling here, but, but a lot of atheists, uh, I often hear them getting down on the ending of Job, which the ending of Job is God kind of saying, like, who are you to ask these questions? And I can right. see why we would be offended. Right. But if, if you read it, if you read it with more sympathetic eyes, it's very much one of these like who who the hell are you to think that God would care about you in the first place? Right, right. <laughs> you know, I have all uh, you know. I'm busy keeping the tides going and to, keeping to, the laws of nature. Tide goes in, tide yeah. goes out. Yeah, and uh, and <laughs> for you to actually think that God would care I, about I you at all, about you. <laughs> yeah, is is really really arrogant. And uh, in a way, it's almost kind of a naturalistic message. Like, look, it's not about us. Yeah, there's there's a couple of strains in just world thought. One of them is that that's a general bias that everybody has from time to time, and the other one is that there's an individual difference, like on a bell curve. Some people are very strong just world believers, like we've been talking about, but mm-hmm. other people are the opposite of a strong just world belief would be basically stuff happens and there's no rhyme or reason, and uh, and there's there's an element of um, clearly. When you're more religious and conservative, you want to have your worldview is that things should operate out of a sense of order and principle. That, that stuff, random stuff can't happen. Yeah. But there's also a strain in just world theory of def- personal defensiveness. So in some of these studies that right. you've done where like rape victim trials where where the degree of similarity between the person and the victim dictates their just world thinking. In other mm-hmm. words, holy crap, if that happened to her – that could happen to me as well because we're similar. So right. therefore, well, she must have done it. She it's must a way have of, done something wrong. It's yeah. a way of defensively this distancing yourself from a victim yep. because otherwise the implications would add up. Oh, crap. It could happen to me. This can't happen to me. I don't dress like a slut. And that's the point of the slut walk is it shouldn't matter how people dress because everyone um, is a potential victim for violent crime and something like rape. So yeah. it, it is people just like you that this happens to, not people who have it coming to them just like just like murder i think know? that's one of the things that that, I've, that we harp on uh, the, the corrosive effects intended or not of religion is that when you hypothesize that things happen for a reason there's a whole cascade of events maybe not intended but that follows from that if, right. if everything happens for a reason then you're left searching for like well he must have deserved it or she shouldn't have dressed that way or all those things Rather than just simply accepting, however terrible in different ways, stuff happens randomly and there's no, you know, there's no right. rhyme or reason. That might be terrible in some extent to, because it's scary, but it's better than blaming. I don't have to find a reason for tragedy then. Yeah. And, th- and there's no God that's gunning for me like Job or anything like that. He's not pushing cars off cliffs with his godly yeah. fingers. Yeah. And and even if they're right that this is an overall overall heuristic in, in how – 
human beings think. When you provide that entire structure of religion on top of it, it's just going to entrench that that belief much much more deeply. Yeah, the, the, make it harder for people to. The, to yeah, the original it. studies too also showed that it happened in a positive direction. So uh, in the sixth, the guy who's responsible for this, his name is Lerner, but uh, he had a positive thing where a guy won a lottery, and then their, the subjects were asked to rate him his character, and they boosted it up. In other words. He um, must be a good guy if because he, he won the lottery. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. So he must have yeah. – if he had this benefit or boon, yeah. then he must have deserved it too. And so there's – it works not just in the negative direction. It works in the positive direction too. Hmm. Which is just absurd because, frankly, if you're dumb enough to play the lottery, you don't deserve to win. And yet – you also Someone <laughs> will inevitably win. You also see working backwards. We've talked about like uh, as if religion has perpetuated this. You also see its influence on religion. And I would argue a lot of – we've talked about like mm. evolutionary psych theories of religion before about how different components of religion might have um, developed because of the way that our mind works. You right. can see concepts in religion develop that try to – answer the just world question and the example I give in class often is the limbo purgatory thing with babies right. in the Catholic Church. That's not a textual biblical or thing but but that you could see the conflict between here we have a policy that you're going to go to hell unless you've been baptized right. and you're not going to be saved. But babies are born and, and they're, and they're, they're, they're cute and they're cute and, and you don't want to think of an unbaptized baby going to hell and if you're a priest you sure as hell don't want to say that to Dante the parents did. Like, what? right well they but look what Dante did he yeah. bumped up hell to well they won't be in they'll be in the lightest level exactly of hell. yeah or there's this place where they go that you can pray uh, and purge their sins and then they'll go to heaven so um, I, I there's some doc, there's some documents from the committees that the Catholic Church have have you know. Um, working committees on developing their doctrine, which show that they're clearly wrestling with, we don't, essentially they say this, we don't want to, we recognize that it seems unfair that innocent children would have to go to hell because they haven't done anything wrong. But on the other hand, we have this whole, you have to baptize to believe. So therefore, and then they almost work it out like we've we've got it. It's purgatory, it's limbo, it's not right. really hell. And and so th there's per a perfect example where our natural sense of justice collides with a theological doctrine. Right. And, and the just world belief kind of produces this thing where we've made this outcome that's not so bad because they don't right. deserve but, it. But didn't they say that if they do go to hell, it's because they must have had it coming? Yeah, yeah. and they must yeah. have had it coming. But the lightest form of hell because you're a baby and how much could you have – you know, I pooed my diapers while – yeah. How much could you have uh, crime-wise as a child? You know, <laughs> your rap sheet is, can't be that long. So. It's true. true. Well, well, you would have been predetermined to know to to do your sins. And so. That's right. I'm, They're already on your head before you even right. know them. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's move on, shall we, to a little bit of polyatheism. Today we take a look at a goddess so incredibly unique that it has led me to break my own cardinal rule and qualify the word unique. She comes from the Mayan culture and fills a role unlike any other god or goddess in any other pantheon, at least any that I've been able to find and I've looked. Sure, lots of cultures have gods or goddesses who help convey the dead to the underworld or even to escort them to some post-death paradise. Everything from the beautiful Valkyries scooping up those who died heroically in Norse mythology to the more common ghost of Christmas yet to come type image of a black hooded skull 
even to the likes of Mandy Patinkin and Dead Like Me. These gophers from the grave are quite common, but none is quite like Ishtab. Ishtab is a Mayan goddess who, admittedly, we don't know a lot about. She's only referenced in one source known as the Dresden Codex because, like Kurt Vonnegut, it was held for a time in Dresden. And so it goes. And there's only one known picture of her, in fact, which may not actually be of her. What we do know about her is that she is a suicide goddess. Her job was to convey people who had committed suicide to the afterlife. Here's the undeniably unique thing. Ishtab took the souls of those who had committed suicide straight up to paradise. For the Mayans, suicide was not an offense to the gods punishable by eternal torture, but was in fact a one-way ticket to the good place. We don't see this in other theologies. I can't imagine that being terribly selective. <laughs> they must have been dealing with over, overpopulation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Get rid of some extra people, you know. You know, <laughs> along with suicidal There's always souls. always suicide. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> along with suicidal souls, Ishtab also was responsible for transporting fallen warriors, priests, and women who died in childbirth to an eternity of rest and repast. Ishtab is truly the original suicide girl, and in fact, in the only picture of her, uh, she is naked, um, is pierced, and has body (laughs) heart. So there you go. Um, If this all strikes you as a bit bizarre, you, my friend, are not alone. Aside from it being grammatically incorrect, super unique... It seems incredibly illogical. Why would you, as a society, essentially promote self-slaughter? If suicide is a one-way trip to heaven, why wouldn't everybody be doing it? Wouldn't the Mayans have disappeared long before 2012, or hell, even long before the Spanish showed up to help shuffle most of them off this mortal coil? Well, the Mayans had a very different take on suicide than most other cultures. Like their neighbors to the west, the Aztecs, the Maya had a rich tradition of human sacrifice. Mm. Neither the Aztec nor the Maya performed human sacrifice just for giggles, though. They believed, as does any culture that engages in such rituals, that it helped keep the gods happy, kept the sky from crashing down, and, of course, helped preserve the health and welfare of their society. In fact, being chosen as a sacrificial lamb was often considered a great honor. It was, quite literally, one of the best things you could do for your people. When the Mayans played the high-stakes version of their ball game, uh, which is like hacky sack meets basketball. um, Meets decapitation. Meets decapitation, (laughs) which um, in the cartoon film Road to El Dorado, you can get kind of an idea of what the game was like. Um... It was the winner and not, as you would expect, the loser who was often beheaded in a ritual sacrifice. Because your life is never going to get any better than that. You might (laughs) as well go out while you're on top. You're you're, you're feeling great. Your head's in the clouds. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So that was your reward for being the MVP. Of course, they didn't do that 
every time they played the game or people wouldn't get very good at it, just like every football match isn't the World yeah, Cup. They didn't have too many two-time champions in that <laughs> sport, did they? Their tournaments were really awkward. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, with gods who require human sacrifice before they would do things like, say, make it rain, the idea of giving your life for your people was very real and very important. It wasn't an act of depression. It was an act of true sacrifice, similar to the way we revere those who die in service to their uh, country or community. Mind you, I'm not saying I agree. I'm just saying um, letting you know what their mindset was. And for the Mayans, it would be something similar to the way we look at um, a, a fallen police officer or firefighter or uh, someone in the military who dies in battle. Of course, the ultimate downfall of the Mayan culture was not that too many of them were willing to die to appease the gods, but that the Spanish missionaries had a really good inroad for their theology. Oh, you believe in human sacrifice? So do we! <laughs> but we believe that you only need one sacrifice, and it's already been done by Jesus! So depending on how you look at it, that was either the worst or second worst thing the Spanish did to the Mayan culture, the other being largely wiping them out with their European weapons, both metal and biological. Mm. The Mayan language and culture still exists today, by the way. Um, there are still people who consider themselves Mayan, but the culture is a mixture of traditional Mayan and Catholicism with a heavy emphasis on the latter. As for Ishtab, the only other thing we know about her is that perhaps she was also a goddess of the moon. The only image we have of her, or what we believe is, is her, her... sticking her ass out the window on the highway. Tattooed. Different, tattooed, tattooed ass out the window. <laughs> Different moon. Uh, the only image we have um, <laughs> appears in the Dresden Codex in a section about lunar eclipses and not in the section about suicide. It's a picture of a partially decomposing woman hanging by a noose with the piercings and body art, of course, um, which may depict Ishtab or it may depict the reaction of pregnant women who believed that during a lunar eclipse, their buns in the oven could fall victim to disease or deformation. So on that cheery note, there you have Ishtab, just one more goddess worth not believing in. And let's turn now to some stranger than fiction, because let's face it, leaving on suicide is a pretty dark note. Anything would be an up from here. That's yeah. right. KKK confronts Westboro Baptist oh, Church at Arlington National Cemetery. <laughs> Which is not the actual headline, but uh, that comes to us from CNN. Perhaps you saw this. Uh, a listener actually sent this in to us. Um, on Memorial Day here in the United States, the president, who, um, if, if you were not aware, is a black gentleman, at least part white, partly. He's, his mo mother is white and his father is black. Um, and he, like all presidents before him, on Memorial Day, attended a memorial service at Arlington National Cemetery. And, of course, 
Fred Phelps and his family, which make up the Westboro Baptist Church, were there holding up their protest signs. Actually, I don't think Fred was was physically there. He's he's very rare. He, he doesn't get out. A he whole was lot. there in bigoted spirit. <laughs> <laughs> because um, of course, their, their theory is that all the death during the wars uh, is caused by God's judgment on a sinful society. So, yes, a sinful society ooh, which loves homosexuals. In. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just world. And of course, every time the Westboro people show up, there are also counter protesters like Rolling Thunder, the biker veteran group, right? Who uh, who drown out the sounds of their cries of hatred with their uh, motorcycles revving. But uh, the CNN article says, among those counter protesting at the cemetery's main entrance, about ten members of a group that claims to be a branch of the Ku Klux Klan from Virginia called the Knights of the Southern Cross. They said they were there to object to Westboro Baptist Church Church's anti-troop message. Quote, <laughs> it's the soldier that fought and died and gave them that right to free speech, said Dennis Labont, the self-described imperial wizard. They have the best titles, I know. don't they? That's the best. Of the KKK group that <laughs> said he formed that said he formed uh, several years ago. Abigail Phelps of the Phelps family responded. And this is the point where I just have no idea what to do with this. Yeah. Did you ever see that movie? I think it was it Enemy at the Gates where it's the... Oh, the Russian... The commies yeah, versus the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Com- commies versus Nazis. And it's like you sit down with your bowl of popcorn and you go, well, I don't know who to root Oy. for. But then you go, wait, wait, I can't lose. <laughs> <laughs> so Abigail Phelps said... That's fine. They have no moral authority on anything. People like them say it's white power, white supremacy. The Bible doesn't say anywhere that it's an abomination to be born of a certain gender or race. Mm. <laughs> that is so great. That was cool. Should so we great. just let that sink oh. in for a moment? Oh, the KKK, they're such bigots. <laughs> they have no moral authority over us at all. That's wonderful. And of course, they almost are. as funny as the KKK saying, uh, right. uh, "These people died for free it's, speech, so we're going to stop well, you from your free speech." Well, you know what? We always say that we fight that don't restrict speech, just fight speech with more speech. They would just insert hate in there. Hate yeah. speech should be fought with more hate speech. Oh, it's fighting fire with fire, right? I mean, oh my, it, that one. A parade of contradictions. I, I saw that article and. <laughs> You're right. We can't lose, but no one wins. Absolutely no one wins. I, I feel like I won because I got such a good laugh over that. <laughs> or, or predators versus the, the aliens. Uh, right. you know, yeah. right. yeah. There's going to there's gonna be bloodshed. That's uh, all that matters. Okay. And our next Stranger Than Fiction story. Severed head of genital disease saint for sale in Ireland. This is from the Belfast Telegraph. And eBay. <laughs> Brought to you by eBay. You can sell <laughs> severed heads on eBay? No, this a, it's not actually eBay. It's uh, And... And why do we care about the state of the genitals? If what, what was what did you say? He he is the patron saint of genital disease. <laughs> they don't have a patron saint of genital. They disease. They do, in fact. Um, from the article here from the Bel- Belfast Telegraph, a decapitated head said to be that of Saint 
Vitalis of Assisi, the patron saint of genital diseases, will be sold at an auction. I sure say he doesn't have another thing and then that's like a sub thing like you could be the patron saint of right. like like it was an add-on people, it wasn't his main friendly people and <laughs> it's like you know the, the local union <laughs> of pipe, pipe fitters and you know tip and we- welders yeah, yeah. and he was the patron saint of nightclubs the venereal <laughs> disease just kind of came on as an add-on uh so it's um currently housed at in a queen anne case it's it's actually well post a picture it it looks very nicely uh capped for a severed head um it's being sold by an anglo-irish family and has a guide price of between 800 pounds and uh 1200 pounds and they've kept it in their china cabinet well mildly (laughs) mildly curious about how did the head get severed uh, was he uh, was he martyred by somebody? Or? Uh, well, yeah, of course he was he martyred. He was a saint. So like some disease apparently. So like sense. if if you have herpes and you you know hold the head, the severed head, does it go away or something cool <laughs> well, like that? Don't wear a condom. God, don't do that. But you can use the <laughs> head to help. You. I don't see why someone would want to purchase that. severed head. Is Unless a great prophylactic. Had... <laughs> okay, yeah. let's be honest here. Um, Flare up, touch the severed head. So, <laughs> so are we going to get it on tonight? Things oh, what's I that have... over there? Oh, that's my severed head collection. Well, good night. See you later. Yeah. Things I have to do today. Touch the, <laughs> the severed, severed head. head. Oh, they might be Giants reference. <laughs> awesome. Um, he was an Italian hermit and monk who died in 1370. 1370, and the head still nicely preserved. He was a uh, monk and a hermit. Yes. And yet he's the patron saint. He became a saint despite an early life marked by licentiousness and immorta- oh, okay. Im- well, look immorality. Look at Augustine. I mean, come on. Yeah, exactly. There Now, so he, he – and then after, you know, his wicked ways, he found God, became a monk, became a hermit and was known for, for healing people. Um, for many years, the ornate case um, with the skull – and it's actually – there's more than just skull there – Housed inside their house, um, and it was a point of pride for the family. But when they had children, they moved the severed head in a glass case to (laughs) an old outhouse, which is a great place to keep the saint of genital diseases. (laughs) How does that conversation, like one morning over tea, you know, the couple was like, you know... Honey, now that the kids are getting older, <laughs> I think it's time to remove this severed head from the living room. <laughs> um, the, no, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> the auctioneer said, said uh, in a different article something to the effect of, we don't know for sure that it's St. Vitalis, but it's certainly someone's head. <laughs> <laughs> No shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Might as well be. <laughs> oh. We had the wrong head to determine if it was the right same. Don't you wish you would have, like, a part of you would have been living during the during the high part of uh, the Middle Ages or, or whenever the, whenever all these reliquaries were crossing Europe? We have Jesus's 
fourth phalange bone. Really? <laughs> we have a piece of the a nail of the true cross. I and like how like, you said if a part you know, of me was living back then. Well, I would not want to stay there, but I just wish I could visit where you could just like flood the market with your, you know, get your. <laughs> yeah. This is the uh, the, the inner ear bone of Jesus. And, uh, well, of course, they wouldn't have Jesus's body Whatever. Parts. They have everything. <laughs> Although I believe one place has his foreskin. If exactly. I'm not mistaken, yep. there is. You yeah. are correct. Yes, yes. So on that wonderful note, <laughs> uh, that's going to do it for us this week. There was a Jesus, how's it hanging pun in there somewhere. <laughs> But I couldn't pull it together at the last minute. Uh, Sorry. One of my favorite Jesus jokes is, uh, never mind. Well, <laughs> I know, I know which one you you're going to say. Yeah. Is. Um, so, until next time, send us your comments, questions, challenges, gripes, and suggestions. We really do pay attention to those. To doubtcast at gmail dot com. Visit our discussion forum, doubtcast dot forummotion.net. That's one M in the middle there. Uh, find us and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at slash Doubtcast. You can go to our store, Zazzle.com slash Doubtcast, uh, where you can pick up some nifty shirts, including Sheber Fever. And I think like Dr. Professor Luke. And Science Wins, Bitches, which is my personal favorite. Um, if was mine. Yes, it was. We even have a skanky version to wear at the slot walk. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you like the show, please write us a nice review on iTunes. And best of all, share it with your friends. So thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another Reasonable Doubt, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. So, is it the put 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 you up for the evening one? Is that what you're gonna say? No. Oh, um, what's wrong? Why uh, why did the women like Jesus? Because he's Cause hung, he was like, hung like this. Oh, because he was hung um, like this. And the other I thought one, you were gonna say the, oh, the one where he hung. he goes into the inn and drops the nails oh, down and says, "Can you put, says, me, up can you put me up for the evening?" <laughs> That's a good one too. And the other wow. new one I just learned is, "What did Jesus say when they took the nails out of his hands?" Feet, 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 feet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good one. Well done.